brought to you by Prep Matters and the book, What Do You Say? How to Talk with Kids to Build Motivation, Stress Tolerance, and a Happy Home. Um, and there's still this disconnect between if kids don't feel well, they can't do well. And I'm having these big conversations with school districts like, if I'm mad or sad, I can't add. And so there's still this gigantic disconnect between mental health and wellness and academic learning. How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. My guest today is Katie McPherson. Katie brings experience in school leadership, prevention, and organizational change with 25 years as a secondary school teacher, guidance counselor, and K-12 school administrator. Katie currently serves as a regional sales manager and director of professional development for Bark for Schools, an artificial intelligence app that protects over 5 million children that protects over 5 million children nationwide and is a national public speaker on youth mental health, digital wellness, and suicide prevention. In her spare time, she's also the mother of four teenage daughters aged 16, 15, 13, and 13. Welcome, Katie. Delighted to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. You and I met when you had a conference out in your corner of the world in Arizona, and it was great to be there uh, and, and then all those other folks. What was interesting to me uh, coming from the East Coast is um, beautiful, sunny place where you are, uh, and still the kids aren't all right. Yeah. What, yeah. what's, tell me, for, for folks who don't know, tell, sketch us a little bit of a picture of, uh, of, uh, Scottsdale Chandler, Arizona and, and kind of what are you seeing? Yeah. I mean, I think we're trending alongside of the national epidemic of just stress amongst our mm-hmm. kids, but also, you know, high levels of teenage anxiety, depression, self-harm. And we've been in a suicide contagion for about five years. Um, I started to notice it in 2015. We actually had a serious tragedy at one of our high schools when a student took his life on campus with a gun, um, which then triggered the succession of five fellow students over the next four years at that particular high school. But then across the street, so to speak, in 2017, we lost four children in 90 days in another area within like the same 20 mile radius. So I started just as a mom educator person watching this and like, what is going on after having been on a middle school or high school campus for 20 plus years at that point, I had never really seen such a thing. We lost like one student of 33,000 students a year when I was on campus. And so this was Mm -hmm. like, something is going on here. So we've been, I have been watching this trend for the last five years. Wow. And you know, what I, what I found 
interesting and, and also troubling um, in my experience is that your experience is staggering and, and difficult as it is, is way more common than we'd like to think, right? You had uh, you shared with me that when this first kind of hit your your community, you reached out to folks in Palo Alto where there was uh, famously a suicide cluster re- reported um, in an article in the in uh, in the Atlantic uh, just a few years before you guys, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know. Like, I had the word suicide was like not even in my wheelhouse. Like, that just wasn't something. Um, a, I ever wanted to be a part of and be right, right, right. that as an ed- educator, you know, I had never had any sort of training in that topic at all. And just recently, our educators have received that training because of one of the families who said, we can't have this happen to another family. We want all teachers trained in the state. And so we passed a law um, in his name. And so now it is law in Arizona that all sixth through 12th grader, 12th grade educators are um, mandated to have suicide prevention training. What's that training look like? What kind of skills or uh, tools uh, are shared with teachers? Well, we have um, several vendors that you can choose from that are Safe Talk, Assist, QPR certified. So it's some of the standard programs that are used nationally. Um, and then alongside of that, Youth Mental Health First Aid. So it's an eight hour course and it is required. It is an unfunded mandate um, from the state. So it's upon mm-hmm. districts to make sure that their people you know, check the box and get the training, but it's really good training. It's coping, it's resilience, it's recognizing warning signs, it's what to do next, how to be the bridge and how to get families resources as well. So it's very well done for being an unfunded mandate. Hmm. Are there tools that immediately come to mind that, that uh, do teachers then share some of those things with parents? Are there, um, are there ways that you might even share now with families to, you know, kind of, are there three easy tips of things for them to be more part of the solution rather than bystanders? Yeah. I mean, I even posted something today. Katie Hurley had something on her Twitter about, you know, listening to kids and not minimizing them, especially during the hundred days of May. Um, we call it, we call May the hundred days of May in education because it is the longest month ever in Arizona. We end school on Memorial day weekend. So, um, everybody this month is just exhausting. Everyone is tired. So, is that because it's, you know, mile 25 in a, in a marathon, you think I'm almost there, but and but still there's still so much there is so much and even though like it should be like pomp and circumstance that it's the end of the school year for a lot of kids and families it's not like finality is hard even you know if you're a junior and you just completed act sat and you're like oh i got through it and that APs. could be exciting yeah it could be yeah. exciting or it could be just i'm so exhausted but for seniors even if they just declared yesterday on decision day i'm going to harvard there's still a finality to leaving your high school and the comfy place that you've been, even if you're excited to go to Harvard. So I think, you know, some of the tips that the training has provided is active listening and not minimizing. Um, One of the things I posted today was I have a great clinical social work uh, friend named Travis Webb and his Mm -hmm. equation for connection is V plus V equals C, which is, getting really vulnerable with your kid and validating. So V plus V equals connection. So getting Mm. down in the ditch and really listening and saying like, I don't, gosh, I've never been blasted on Snapchat before. I don't even know what that would be like. 
but that has to be really painful. Tell me more about that. Like these simple one-liners that we can say to mm-hmm. our kids or even your friends' kids that really validate. That's what I continue to hear from kids is my parents don't understand. My parents aren't listening. Um, I did a movie screening last night with a live survivor named Emma Benoit, who's just fabulous. Um, she attempted suicide two years ago and um, was not successful, is paralyzed from it is now oh 19, 19 and traveling the nation speaking about her experience and how she overcame some of the things she was struggling with. And one of the questions, one of the audience members asked her last night was, what could your parents have done differently? And she said, well, I would never blame my parents for what I did. It was my choice to do that. It was how I was feeling. It's what I did. But yeah. she said, if I could you know, wave a magic wand for parents, it would be to not minimize, to validate and try to get down to the level of your child and understand even if Emma is an overachiever and has all A's and is a top athlete, um, maybe she can't bounce back from this F. Maybe she can't bounce back from this breakup and really understand what resilience is. When Sandra, we had a, a chance to talk with uh, Ellie Leibowitz, uh, whose wonderful book, um, Breaking Free of Childhood Anxiety and OCD. Uh, and he's the guy, as you know, who created the SPACE program, which, which remind our, our listeners, a program that works just with parents to help um, childhood anxiety, where classically we'd have kids go off and do therapy. Um, This is actually a whole protocol that works just with parents to actually help decrease the stress of the anxiety that the kids are experiencing. And and the kind of first tool that's in there is this validation. Um, And I'd love to to explore this a little bit because one of the things um, that he points out is that when kids are upset about things, the kind of two traps that that parents so and, and educators easily fall into is either telling them, oh, it's fine, it's not that big a deal, or you know, to kind of tell them, you know, suck it up, you'll you'll get over this kind of thing, you know, or, or your kid, you know, bombs a test or whatever, and we say, you know, you'll you'll make it up next time. It's it's okay, you'll get past this. I think there's a default setting for parents to say it's not that big a deal, that somehow it'll make you feel like it's not that big a deal, and it, and it seems well intentioned. But it has the effect of feeling invalidating as though the the hard feelings that you have about this thing aren't real, aren't valid, that you should be, air quotes, should be feeling differently about this in the way that you are. Um, And when we can validate, say, boy, that seems like it's really tough. I think a lot of times parents feel that if they do this, they're sort of playing into, you know, kids being really upset about things when when in fact um, it actually helps kids feel seen and heard. And that is what calms our hard emotions rather than trying to talk kids out of those hard emotions. Well, and it's something that, you know, when Rosalind Wiseman was in town with you mm-hmm. here in Scottsdale, you know, she talks about, you know, the things in your book, the autonomy, the sense of confidence, the relatedness. And so just in like that one line of validation of saying, I don't know what it's like to see your boyfriend break up with you and then post a photo mm-hmm. of another girl two days later you're validating, like, I'm relating to you. This has to be so hard. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the same experience as you, but I'm validating that I see your pain. I hear your pain and I'm here for it. And I will continue to be here for it and be that bridge to get you over the hump. I think that's the, the biggest learning I've had about suicide prevention is the runway is always there. The struggle prior to the attempt and the ideation is always there. If we can scoop them up, 
on that runway of struggle and validate and really give them that emotional blueprint to anchor to, we can prevent this. You know, we know that it's preventable to a certain extent, but um, I think, you know, with good intention, like you said, moms, especially, we get super anxious ourselves. We do not have the nap, the non-anxious presence that you talk about in your book. <laughs> um, Thank you again for, for pointing out to us. We actually had a word there. Yeah. Um, we tend to, like you said, like we just want to make it all better in the moment as fast as possible because then it right. makes us feel better. Right. Right. Um, but then kids are sitting in this yuck and, you know, using their phones as a numbing agent, using vapes, using video games, using all sorts of other outlets that are not as healthy as some of the things that we could be teaching them. Yeah, really, I'd love to emphasize that point of how easy it is for us as friends, as parents, as, as educators to try to move people on or, you know, away from the the hard stuff that they're feeling, partly because it's so it's so hard to be with kids when things are when things are hard. I was my my, my daughter's just in the hospital right now. It just had a, a her gallbladder removed, which was a, a, an outcome of pancreatitis. Was an outcome of another procedure. It's been it's been a lot, and I was reflecting to a friend that it is so much easier for us as people to support people who are going through acute challenges, acute crises, but to hang with people when things are chronic, right? So if, if you if you or someone you know has, you know, a chronic illness or, you know, anxiety or depression, these aren't things that, that pop up and go, and go away within a matter of weeks or months. They oftentimes are with us for a long, long time. And we have this tendency to want to sweep it, sweep it away. I remember years ago, I was reading a, a study had been done about nurses in a clinic, a burn clinic, a hospital, something with burn patients. And they were looking at whether it's easier to rip the bandages, to remove when they've changed the bandages, to pull them off quickly or to pull them off slowly. And the nurses had this sense that it was easier to pull them off quickly, in part because they got it over the suffering over and done with. But the patients preferred to do it slower. And part of it, I think, is there was a greater sense of control for the patient saying, no, no, well, hold on, give, give me a minute. Let, hold on, let me catch, let me catch my breath here. But it, it made the process harder for the nurses because they were sort of, you know, tormenting these people for a longer period of time. And I can't help but think that that we as parents or or, um, or educators or friends kind of want to just, okay, you're great, and we're done crying with this. Let's move on to, let's just put this behind us, even if the person isn't ready to yet. Well, even, and as teachers too, like, you know, two fourth grade girls come off the playground and she pushed me up the swing and she wouldn't let me do, she wouldn't let me sit next to her. Like whatever the conflict is, teachers are quick to also, because they have 25 kids waiting for them to instruct, you know, to quickly mm. try to get those girls through that, knowing that those two girls are probably going to show up again in a couple of days with a similar conflict. So a lot of the training that I do is like in that moment, what can we do efficiently to get those two girls to where they need to be emotionally so they can tend to learning while you're starting your class? And there's some quick strategies and ways to do that. Um, and I'm always astonished when I ask, you know, why, why do you want to get through that so quickly? And, and the, the standard response is, well, I have to get class started. Um, and there's still this disconnect between 
if kids don't feel well, they can't do well. And I'm having these big conversations with school districts. Like if yeah. I'm mad or sad, I can't add. And so there's still this gigantic disconnect between mental health and wellness and academic learning. Right. Um, yep. everybody's talking about academic learning loss. Well, we've got, you know, we've got kids that arrived back at school after two years of hybrid or, you know, being online at home with some significant behavioral and social emotional issues that are, you know, really making teachers and administrators question whether or not these kids are okay. What's one of the tools that you would offer to if, if I'm a teacher, you know, and I've got these two squabbling kids, but I'm looking at the clock and I've got this agenda and I've got to get through. Can, can, is, there a, is there an emergency measure to take right there? Yeah. I mean, I think it's training. It's training the kids that, I mean, as fourth grade girls, they are fully capable of standing out in the hallway and having a human conversation about when you pushed me off the swing, it made me feel blah, blah, blah. Well, last week you didn't sit with me at lunch. And so that's right. Like, it's never about what it's about. There's always like that stuff mm -hmm. brewing underneath. And so we as teachers see the behavior, but we usually don't take the time to get to the root emotion. So allowing those kids either to come in and start to journal or draw and calm that brain down, get a drink of water, get the cortisol dissipating out of the brain and get yeah, those yeah, yeah. brain baseline. That's going to go so much better for you as a teacher <laughs> and for those <laughs> children to be able to self-regulate or co-regulate with each other. And you can get yeah. a class started, start the warm up. I'm going to take care of these two. And it doesn't have to be like, it's not going to be a hallmark moment either. It's going to be, <laughs> you know, it may get worse before it gets better. But if we don't tend yeah. to it, those girls are going to show up again. That rumination loop does not stop. Right. I, uh, what popped to mind for me, I have a, I have a, um, a dear friend who's, who's been a DBT, uh, um, for people who don't know, it's kind of the platinum version of, of cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, dialectic behavioral therapy. Uh, and she taught a parenting class gosh, my kids were like three and five. And it was, it was, it was, a, it was about parenting difficult children. And, uh, and my wife said, do you think we have difficult children? And I said, no, but I intend to keep it that way. And they taught. And, and, and so, um, uh, Dr. Ann Wake, she taught the idea of an ice cream sandwich, which was basically, um, your, your gripe, your complaint, your ask sandwich between two validations. So, mm -hmm. You know, Katie, I know that you are upset with me, um, uh, and and then it makes sense that you know, but but I really didn't like it when you you know stole my phone. Um, but I, but I, I know that you had reasons. Or you know, for, she had a five year old said, you know, I like you, Katie. Stop pushing me. I like you, <laughs> which yeah. is not very yeah. sophisticated, but what you know, but still gets the job, the job done. Um, that reminds me a little bit of Rosalind Wiseman has this seal approach where you stop, explain, affirm, and then lock in or out, which the lock in or out is a step that schools, especially middle and high schools, don't really attune to in that it's okay for kids to take a break from each other. It's okay to take a break from a friendship. So you're either, you're affirming like, I like you as a person, but what you did was not okay with me. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. I need a couple of days to just chill before we're forcing a forced apology or saying to a kid, like, I don't care if you guys don't like each other, but you need to be respectful. And her platform mm -hmm. is all about dignity and respect. And mm -hmm. you can't respect somebody who stripped you of your dignity. And so I think that that ability for kids to set boundaries and say, like, I'm going to lock you in 
I really, you know, want to be friends and maintain this friendship or the ability to say, I need a vacation. Like we are not mm. getting along. I just need a couple day break. Um, so that seal approach, especially if trained in the elementary years, like middle and high school becomes so much easier because you know how to set a boundary and you also know yeah, yeah. how to affirm a person that you you actually like we just had a typical kid thing you know and it doesn't get labeled as like bullying like you're the victim you're the aggressor yeah no i think two thoughts come to mind one the important difference between conflict and bullying right the, oh, the gosh, conflict yeah. is is sort of part of it any relationship, right? You know, you and I are pals, but I can say something that kind of annoys you, right? Or frustrates mm -hmm. you or said that just wasn't cool. You really put me in a hard place. But all conflict doesn't necessarily mean bullying. And, and I think that is important one so that we don't turn bullying in too broad a way because in some ways it kind of diminishes um, the real gravity of things that really are bullying, but also doesn't pathologize conflict because learning like you just pointed out taking two fourth grade girls and, and trying to give them the tool and let them step out in the hallway and see see where they can get with this from my perspective when adults handle all the conflict kids don't learn to handle it themselves and of course we need the, those tools even more than we need you know addition and subtraction learning how to handle conflict in a healthy respectful even disagreeable way um, you know, is just so valuable. So kids can, you know, they don't end up graduating high school, like, you know, declawed cats with no ability to protect themselves when, when they do find themselves in conflict. Well, and it goes back to your, you know, your line from your book, like you can't do hard things unless you've done hard things. And, <laughs> and I, you know, in the space where I work in prevention, like imagine those fourth grade girls that get that vocabulary down of, it's not the, it's not um, attacking the personhood. It's identifying the behavior that you did that I didn't like. Mm -hmm. So fast forward sixth grade, somebody's offering that kid a vape in the bathroom and they've had two years to say, nope, that's not okay with me. Eighth grade, it's marijuana or a pill. 10th grade, they go on their first date. Maybe somebody wants to do something they're not ready for. They've had like all these years of going back and forth with different kinds of kids standing up for themselves and gaining that social competence. And so from a risk standpoint, those skills, you know, in conflict also come into play when people try to do or say things or give you things that aren't great. Um, so I look at it from a prevention standpoint too. No, I think that's great. And, and we know that the brain science on it is, you know, handling things that are hard, even if, you know, even if in a sloppy way, um, the, simply the sense that I, I got through that okay well enough, um, that that gen, you know, the sense that I can cope that I because I coped with this difficult situation that I can cope with other difficult situations. And to your point, you know, what what kids face in tenth grade is very different from fourth grade, but that progressively, you know, getting better and stronger in their ability to navigate hard situations. Um, I mean, I, I love the fact that, that the, these skills actually get wired into brains. And, and obviously, we'd like to have our kids graduate, uh, you know, leave the household with brains that can handle hard things. Well, and I think it's a, it's a double whammy from like they're getting it online and then they're getting it in person. And so they're getting crushed yeah. on both sides, even at young ages, right? So the ability to say, I can cope with somebody blasting me on Snapchat. I can also cope with somebody excluding me at the lunch table because those are two yeah. very typical things that happen in a week to a seventh grader. 
you know, so the ability to be able to do that at younger ages, people think I'm crazy when I'm like, let your, your kids at home fight, let them fight within reason, right? Like the negotiation skills, the bickering back and forth, as long as it's safe, physically, emotionally, mentally, like the best gold out of that is that they can transfer those quick comebacks, you know, especially in boy world. Like if you don't have a quick comeback in boy world, you're toast. So being able to, (laughs) you know, being able to roast each other back and forth in an appropriate way, then you can transfer those skills when you're in the locker room in eighth grade. I mean, it's brutal out there. Yeah, so I, it might have been Katie Hurley. I can't remember a conversation a month or so ago and, and talking about um, watching a group of kids, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe you know, elementary or middle school age, and they're, they're trying to play a game and they, they spend half their time just fighting before they even get to the game. And the parents have this natural inclination, want to jump in and set the rules and da, da, da. And, you know, she made the point that no, 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 no. All of that fighting about what the rules are and what's fair and what's not. That's the actual important stuff, right? Because if I come in and I'm trying to force everyone to do things my way, and at some point you and everyone else say, well, that's fine, Ned, but you know, forget you, we're not going to play the game at all. That's really valuable for you to stand up for yourself, but also for me to learn that I have to play nicely. Otherwise, I don't have anyone to play with. And those skills are, and and we we don't get those if there's an adult who's refereeing the whole darn thing. Yeah. Well, and with the whole movement, I mean, I I watched it unfold as an administrator the minute after Columbine. I mean, we had all these regulations come down, you know, and parents freaked out and said, school is unsafe, so I got to protect my baby. So every time you call me and say, you know, he had a conflict, I'm coming down and we're going to have a talk, you know, as an administrator. It was it was pretty brutal, you know, receiving (laughs) those anxious parents who just, you know, wanted to intervene, but that was driven by the framework of there's a bully and there's a victim. And I tried to reframe, you have two eighth grade boys flooded with testosterone. They had a moment and it's going to be okay. You know, it wasn't malicious harassment, intimidation, which fits the litmus test of bullying in our district. It was mean, annoying, and rude. Hmm. I reflect on my uh, son, who's now 20, when he was in eighth grade, maybe seventh grade, he sort of joined this friend group. And there was a boy who was already part of this group who felt really threatened, like, am am I going to be displaced? And somewhere along the line, you know, to your point, roasting each other and comebacks and and uh, this other boy who wasn't as quick or skilled with those roasts um, just resorted to using physical and and push my son off a playground rock or whatever and went tumbling down the hill and, you know, a little bruised and bloodied. And so we're just watching, watching, watching. And uh, I mean, it took for a while for them to sort of sort things out. But they became really good friends. And when my son went through uh, his you know, brain tumor, this kind of thing, this boy was the first one to reach out, you know, through through channels and say, I heard about this. How are you doing? Wow. That's awesome. That's He's sweet. a cool kid. Yeah. He's a cool kid. So sweet. So you're also a parent. Um, what do you think the parents don't know? What do parents not understand that educators are seeing? And what do educators not understand that parents are seeing? I think parents, um, gosh, there's just so much on the shoulders of educators now with the stress levels of our families. So you have families even that are well-resourced, affluent families who have high dysfunction in them. So I think parents forget that you've got 36 kids in the classroom in Arizona, 34 kids. I mean, that is a standard size. 
Um, 36 ninth graders and 19 of them are boys who are flooded with testosterone. I mean, right there, parents don't Mm. understand like that is a task. Um, Then you have phones in the classroom um, that are allowed because the district can't afford to give everybody a laptop. So take out your phone. So I think parents don't understand how hard it is to manage a typical American classroom these days. You've got so many things coming at you. Then you have people that are trying to restrict what you can teach. Um, They just passed a law yesterday in Arizona that um, teachers have to post everything they're doing and saying in their classroom online for parents to be able to see. So parents are, um, you know, a small faction of parents are attacking teachers. Um, From the teacher's perspective, I think sometimes they lose sight of what it's like to be a kid, even though they have kids in front of them every day, they're so like sometimes in their lane of content and I've got to get through the standards and there's so much pressure on me, you know, to Mm. perform as a teacher that they forget. Like I said, like some of these children have had no sleep. Some of these children are living with parents that are divorcing. Some of these parents, kids are living with parents who are addicted to substances. Like you have so many moving parts that it's difficult to remember that like, we're all in this together. I've seen the last three years have been the most divisive between that break between parents and teachers really coming together collectively to be like, Hmm. how can we help each other? Um, So that's been concerning to me is that we all want to say, I see you, I hear you, I love you to these kids. And we are collectively saying that, but the noise is getting in the way. The noise of social media and the politics within education are getting in the way of that tandem approach to this is a community responsibility, mental health and wellness, social emotional wellness, just wellness overall is we're all in this together, you know? Have you seen um, glimmers of hope? Have you seen a group of parents or teachers or a school um, taking active steps, proactive steps to um, build that greater connection between parents and educators. Any, anything that uh, folks in other corners of the world might uh, um, borrow or steal? Yeah, I mean, there are several schools in Scottsdale whose PTOs are super strong. There's a dad's club at Cochise Elementary in Scottsdale. Like mm. getting dads involved has been hard over the years, and they have done a really great job at that. I think just um, the parent education series that a lot of schools are now doing, you know, I do like a movie screening each month and invite both parents and teachers to come. So there's some neat, innovative things going on. But I think the last two years have been really hard where we all just need to disarm and, and look at each other and say, we're all here for a common good. And that's kids and get back to that baseline. Um, but yeah, there's some really cool, creative, innovative things going on. I mean, there's some schools that are restricting phones in the classroom, which I think is super fab. Um, Forest Hills, uh, school district in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I mean, no, no phones allowed. Like it's changed the the safety and climate of that, you know, those high schools. Um, so there are ways to do this if we all come together, but it's, it's drowning out the noise and really dropping egos, dropping silos and coming together again. Yeah, it was funny. I was just at the hospital with my daughter in the children's hospital and sitting there in the waiting room and watching 
kid was maybe two years old in a stroller and getting a little fussy and parents handed him the phone. So he's sitting there watching, looking at this thing. And so you have all three of these folks, mom, dad, and the kid sitting there all on screens. And all I can think is it. And then they get to be teenagers and we're telling them, get off that phone. And I'm like, you've wired their brains for 12 14 years of phones, 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 you know, we, we as parents too easily pick up the phone when we're in the presence of our own kids. And what are we, we're, you know, for a toddler, we're, we're telling them that what's on the screen is more interesting to you, more interesting than you, excuse me, um, and, and more interesting for you that, that you, you want to get one of these things as soon as you can, because it must be so interesting that mom and dad are putting all their attention into that. So I, I love the idea of schools figuring out ways to have just have less technology in the uh, in the classroom, but it's uh, that's probably swimming against the tide a little bit right now. It's swimming against parents who are demanding it. I mean, it, that's really a parent thing. Like my child must have a phone so I can get a hold of them, and or what if there's a school shooting? I better be able to get a hold of my kid. And I do a lot of training around the last place you want a child during an active shooting or drill is on a phone. They should be paying attention to the teacher. Um, phones don't oh, lie, you know, being, being ready to engage. And we saw that in Oxford, Michigan in the last major school shooting, you know, those kids knew exactly what to do. I mean, they were trained in Alice, which is a prevention program for students and educators those kids knew exactly what to do because they weren't on their phones. Yes. A few of them mm. got on their phones after and, you know, we're recording things of course, but um, by and large lives were saved because they were prepared and they weren't on their phones communicating with parents. Wow. So they're paying attention to the, the circumstances on the ground, not looking at their phone for, you know, instructions from someone who's not even on the battlefield. Yeah. Or again, back to your nap, your non-anxious presence. If parents are communicating with the kid about what kind of alerts they're getting and they're saying this and they're saying that, like that's just amping the anxiety of the student who's already in a pickle in a situation where I don't know if I'm going to get out of here alive, you know? So it's just, I watched it, you know, as soon as Columbine happened, I watched parents just this thin veil of terror came over their hearts and they were like, yeah. my child will have a device. And it, I mean, you, you understand the, you understand the instincts for that because ultimately what, what parents are trying to do is to feel more control themselves, which, which, you know, makes it because the low sense of control is so stressful. But of course, the, you know, this work of Jesse Borelli, the, the more control that I feel as a parent, the less control by, by definition, both my kid will have and the educators will have. So I'm trading my, I'm trading my discomfort for theirs. So I feel better, but, but they feel worse. And so that, you know, the, the people who are most involved in education, the student and the teacher are, are in a compromised position, both for, to your point, you know, sad man, you can't add, or in the middle of something even much more dire, you know, an on the ground crisis. Mm -hmm. And Emma Benoit, the lived survivor from the movie, My Ascension, yeah. talked about that last night that, you know, she had everything, she had it all, um, but that she felt a very low sense of control because yeah. everything had been carefully engineered throughout her life, her cheerleading career, where she was going to school, what church they attended, like, you know, she had a pretty charmed life. Um but the one thing that she needed was that anchor of when I feel like this, 
here are the three, you know, healthy anchors that I can, you know, buoy onto. Um, so going back to that, you know, it's, it's just fascinating. It's been fascinating to watch over the years with the advent of the smartphone, how yeah. it has impacted childhood. So I'm going to, uh, with, with, <laughs> I'm going to end this on a really hopeful, uh, a really upbeat yes. note. Um, so I loved your, I loved your, your, your TEDx talk and you talk about the importance this is where we sort of started our conversation about the importance of vitamin C and how that helps kids and how that helps relationships and ultimately therefore how it, how that helps education. So you want to, you want to explain, uh, your, your wonderful take personal take on vitamin C. Yeah, I actually, the phrase vitamin C is from one of my colleagues, Geronda Montano. She's a preventionist. She's just lovely, but um, she really just talks about that authentic connection that we have, like putting down the devices, having family time, taking those rides in the car. A lot of the work that I do is like trying to get kids to open up. And so mm -hmm. when bodies are in motion, they tend to talk more. So at mm -hmm. the school level, I would, you know, a kid in conflict, I'd take him on a walk. I would get like the whole story in five minutes as opposed to sitting down that. and peppering them with questions. So I, I think that's one of the biggest strategies of vitamin C is having that time when a kid's frustrated or sad or mad or you can't get them to open up is just making up an errand, putting them in the car shoulder to shoulder and saying something simple. So tell me more about what happened with Chloe. And then you're like, literally shut your mouth. <laughs> and then typically <laughs> I have girls, so maybe it's different with boys, but, um, my girls really open up when we're in motion. Um, so for me, the connection comes from those activities we do together. And then those soft, you know, spots at night where I go to turn out the light and all of a sudden they want to talk for two more hours, <laughs> you know? So sometimes the comfort of turning the lights out at night is like, I don't have to look at your face, but I have something to tell you. And it's really, really important. So I think those moments that sometimes when we're exhausted, um, those are some of the moments that really drive that vitamin C. I love that. Yeah. I love that. I mean, that one, I think that darkness is sort of like, you know, kids in the backseat of the car at night, um, mm -hmm. there's, it's a little less, a little bit less intense, uh, mm -hmm. and, and very much that at night, um, my writing partner, Bill Stickstreet talked about that, that when, when kids at night, they're, when a little more tired, their inhibition falls a little bit. Uh, and so again, turn off the light and, and, uh, sit down on the side of the bed, the kid, that's often when kids will share stuff that's hard, that they, they, uh, it's been on their minds, but they just haven't, haven't gotten out of them until just that time at night. So. Um, yeah. that's a great <laughs> floodgates it tends to yeah just open. exactly right exactly yeah. right yeah there's some research uh, out of harvard that michelle eichard has in her book mm -hmm. um the 14 conversations to have before 14 about mm -hmm. um facial expressions of mm -hmm. mothers specifically driving cortisol into the brain so um she also added on to that piece of like sometimes if you're not face to face that's an easier space um, for kids to open up. Well, I think part of that is, um, and I hope this is, you know, for listeners that that teenagers, um, once they go through puberty, they become incredibly, incredibly attuned to social approval and disapproval. This is why they kind of do things in, in middle school, like you did what? Because that approval is so important. But Kids at that age aren't, they're incredibly attuned to seeing emotion, but they're not as good at 
interpreting it. And so as a, as a dad or as a mom, if I'm really, if I'm upset or concerned about the thing that my kid is, is sharing, teenagers will, will far too readily assume that, that as a parent, I'm upset or concerned, you know, about them, not, not for them. Um, and so they can read that as my, 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 my dad's mad at me. It's like, well, I'm not mad. I just don't feel that I'm mad. I'm concerned. Um, but ultimately, if we can, if we can use a little bit of a, if we can rub, rub their back and have the light off, they can, they can feel that warmth and not misinterpret uh, um, a concerned parent expression. I, I have a lot of um, interactions with my girls that go like that where, like, why are you so mad? I'm like, I'm not mad. They're like, your face looks mad. Like, my face, and you know, Michelle talks in her book about the Botox brow, like trying to keep your face very still. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm practicing the Botox brow. <laughs> uh, I love it. I love it. And I'll end with this. You know, we started our, our book, What Do You Say, uh, with these conversations. We had an interview in all these, you know, teens and young adults um, and, you know, asking about who they felt closest to and the importance of this, that a close connection, the science is really clear on this, the close connection that a, that a kid feels to another adult, ideally a parent, if not both, that may be the single best way to protect kids against the effects of stress on developing brains, and particularly when we have you know, mental health challenges or, or things that are crisis, in crisis, the, the more that a kid can feel close to a ideally a parent or a teacher, that's the single best way to protect them against some of the terrible, terrible outcomes that come. We've all been seeing too much, particularly in the last couple of years. Yeah, so vitamin sure. C people, vitamin C. Vitamin C. Well, Katie, thanks for joining us. I, uh, I am incredibly grateful for the work that you do there out in Arizona. It is, it takes it takes real courage and um, a great amount of compassion and certainly the, the cheerfulness for people who I wish they know you. You are forever with a, a smile across your face. Uh, and it's not, it's not, it, I can imagine, I can't imagine much work, work that's much harder than the work that you're doing and the school systems there and of course across the country. And I'm grateful for that and, uh, and for you sharing your wisdom with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It was great to be here. Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.